Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. Today is September 17th, which is Constitution Day in the United States, when Americans remember and celebrate the final signing of the U.S. Constitution on this day in 1787. 39 representatives, including George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, Governor Morris, signed the document in the assembly room of the Pennsylvania State House after nearly four months of debates, arguments, negotiations, compromises, and a whole lot of sweat. The story of the Constitution didn't end on September 17, 1787, of course, because each state then had to ratify the document, which meant more rounds of debate. The Federalist supporters of the document duked it out with anti-federalist opponents in the newspapers and on the stump throughout the country. And then there was the formation and evolution of the Bill of Rights, which was intended to address some of the opponents' complaints while also maintaining the spirit of the original document. It was a very long, arduous process, but hopefully we can all agree that it was worth the trouble. It's almost a cliche to say that the Constitution is playing some sort of larger role in our everyday lives now than it did before, but it feels like the debates over constitutional rights have become more commonplace lately. What with mandates for face masks and vaccines in response to the coronavirus pandemic, a renewed fight over women's rights to privacy regarding abortion, challenges to the legitimacy and outcome of the 2020 presidential election, the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol that threatened to block the traditionally peaceful transition of political power, the extent of police power, racial justice, and a whole host of other issues lately. Today, I'm going to talk to a group of historians about some of these issues and, you know, see if we can fix all the country's problems while we're at it. First, let me introduce everybody. Longtime listeners will remember Natalie Sweet, who appeared on this podcast back in 2018 and serves as the program coordinator for the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum in Tennessee. Hi, Natalie. Hello, Rob. Good to be with you today. Ryan Tripp also appeared on this podcast back in 2018 when he discussed the Narragansett Ancient Constitution. Ryan also serves on the Communications Committee for the Faculty Association of California Community Colleges. Hi, Ryan. And making his first appearance on this podcast is Joel Cherney, who teaches history at Southern New Hampshire University. Hello, Joel. Hey, Rob. Now, rather than focusing on specific sections of the Constitution or the ratification process, today we're going to focus on how the history of the Constitution is relevant to some of the most pressing issues of the present and of the recent past. To be specific, we're going to discuss how the Constitution has been relevant to the public health responses to disease pandemics, to the peaceful transition of political power, and the extensive history of political and the extensive history of political protests, rebellions, and insurrections in American history. So, first off, one of the most pressing issues in the U.S. today is the response to the coronavirus pandemic. There's been a lot of debate over the power of the state and federal governments to mandate masks and vaccinations. So, how has the Constitution been relevant to this discussion? I want to start with Ryan since he has written on the topic recently. So, Ryan, what can you tell us about how the Constitution has been used to respond to disease pandemics in the past? Well, there's been use of the Free ex Exercise Clause, the uh, Free Assembly Clause, as well as indirect powers of Congress to, uh, you know, govern commerce. There's always that, uh, that road with, with uh, uh, loose construction. 
But I think um, what the recent Supreme Court ruling actually um, cited, and I think the uh, what most historians, and this is kind of an obvious one, and I know there's there's many many more, is of course the uh, the Fourteenth Amendment, and that goes back to uh, the 1905 uh, Jacob, Jacobson versus Massachusetts case. Okay, that that occurred in 1905. Um, again, this is this is uh, over 10 years before the H1N1, the Spanish influenza pandemic. This particular case had to do with a, a smallpox vaccine. Smallpox vaccine, although that case uh, has been applied in uh, not just to va vaccinations, but also to, for example, uh, masks uh, from the Black tri Triangle masks um, during uh, the H1N1 pandemic to our present day masks. Um, also to a variety of other uh, both federal and state uh, orders or recommendations by the CDC um, in, to uh, mitigate the current pandemic. So what is, so what's, so what's, why is everybody talking about Jake Jacobson versus Massachusetts, or at least people in, who, who talk about the constitution and ritualize it as such. <laughs> people who know about it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, why are they talking about Jacobson uh, versus Massachusetts? Well, there's actually a couple of reasons. I think it's in, in, in United States legal history, I think Jacobson versus Massachusetts is kind of a fascinating ruling um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, so basically the facts of the case are this guy named Jacobson um, and Massachusetts passed a law to, uh, to uh, require vaccination against smallpox. As we all know, the, the smallpox vaccine or what would become the small smallpox vaccine was, uh, was, I guess, generated, is the appropriate word, in, 17, in 1796. And then there was a whole round of laws and a rise and fall of enforcement, especially through the 1813 uh, Act by, by Congress. Um, but let's, let's, let's take us to, to 1905. Jacobson doesn't want to get doesn't want to receive the smallpox vaccine for a variety of reasons. Okay, and there's this Massachusetts law saying that he has to, um, or he faces a steep fine of, of five dollars. Right, he paid the five dollars, but he shot him and a group a cohort of attorneys challenged the ruling in a state uh, court and then uh, the federal circuit courts and of course the United States Supreme Court. Now his challenge, or rather his attorney's challenge, again rested on uh, readings of the 14th Amendment, uh, due process, not so much equal protection, but uh, due process, equal protection, and the various important clauses of the 14th Amendment. Now uh, as historians, uh, whether or not they're legal historians or otherwise, uh, know when you talk about the 14th Amendment during this period, it's kind of a I mean, it is kind of a, a, a crucible of discord and conflict and various interpretations. And uh, what ended up happening was that Jacobson argued that, uh, to a certain extent, notions of liberty and even dovetailing with dovetailing during this period of liberty of contract, that this that the state law requiring, uh, even requisitioning vaccines. Uh, undermined his uh, 14th Amendment uh, rights as a citizen of the United States, and then he goes into uh, due process and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the question here is, is does, there's a couple of questions as to whether the uh, 14th Amendment even applies to this case, 
okay? Whether Jacobson, this, this state law is violating uh, his, his, I mean, he called it his, his liberty, okay, as a citizen of the United States, and um, what the Supreme Court's going to do, okay? Is this, is, this, is this constitutional law? Does this fall within the, both the jurisdiction of the court and whether the vaccine falls within the juris, jurisdiction of the state? Now, the uh, ruling, and I'll get into historical context in like a couple seconds. The ruling, just to sort of put a cap on the story, not to ruin it for you, is that, um, in fact, uh, the, the majority, the, the justice who wrote the majority ruling, and we'll get into him in a second, um, ruled that, in fact, no, the, the state does have uh, the authority and to limit uh, the liberties and the privileges and immunities associated with, with citizenship in the United States, okay, in certain regulatory cases, particularly when it comes to the public health, okay, particularly when it comes to public health. That is, this vaccine didn't apply just to Jacobson. The uh, vaccination um, also applied to the community at large and the public at large. And uh, there were in certain cases, um, the facts, you know, and, and you know, the majority uh, opinion kind of goes into certain cases and where and how and why and maybe examples. But um, there are certain cases where, in fact, yes, uh, your individual liberty can be, and that liberty is socioeconomic and um, also uh, having to do with your health, uh, uh, can be limited and regulated. I think regulated is the key word here. Now, what makes this case difficult is that um, the Fourteenth Amendment, and we'll go back. And I, you know, we have uh, civil civil war specialists. Um, I think on this podcast, so they can speak more to this. But uh, during the Reconstruction period, as we all know, the Fourteenth Amendment, um, via the slaughterhouse cases, the civil rights cases, and a host of other uh, rulings, was effectively um, I don't want to say uh, reconstructed, but uh, to a certain extent transformed by uh, into kind of a a Kind of amalgam of not just you know there's always protection of of uh, you know state commerce and inter interstate commerce, but it was the Fourteenth Amendment no longer after these cases uh, applied uh, to African American freedmen. Now technically it did, but it was expanded to the point, and this is where debates over you know do loose does loose construction and strict construction is loose construction always you know a a, a so-called liberal doctrine maybe maybe not. Um, but it wasn't directed, the 14th Amendment wasn't directed anymore at, at its, you know, its initial, I'm not going to say original intentions, but initial intentions um, for protecting African-American free men and women and providing them um, protection uh, that they are due as citizens of the United States, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, equal protection of the laws, laws being applied equally, and also uh, procedurally uh, through due process, okay? So this, and since the 14th Amendment is constructed to not apply to them, um, that's where we get the advent of state Jim Crow laws, where state, where the, through these rulings and the federal government not being able to use the 14th Amendment for what it was intended to do, um, state Jim Crow laws are, are easier to pass in the late 19th century. So this takes us up to Jacobson versus Massachusetts, and Jacobson is using the 14th Amendment to argue that uh, this state law, a la a state Jim Crow law, 
is violating his 14th Amendment. I mean, he's not, he's not an African, he's not necessarily, uh, you know, self-identifying as an African-American freedman, but uh, that's essentially what he's doing. He's using kind of a parallel argument, okay, that in fact, the, the, the 14th Amendment should and should and would uh, protect him uh, from state incursions um, in due process and his uh, liberties as a uh, citizen of the United States. All right. So it's not surprising that the majority opinion on this, uh, the, who wrote, who kind of overrode this and said, no, in fact, there is state police power, okay, um, is in fact, and the federal, there, there's limits to, uh, to this uh, kind of liberties, but also limits to what the, the federal jurisdiction versus state jurisdiction can do. Not surprisingly, if you think in dialectical and legal terms, uh, was uh, Marshall, Har Marshall Harlan. If any of you are familiar with Marshall Harlan, he wrote one of the, uh, he's famous for writing a major dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, which legitimated, uh, uh, right, separate but equal. He dissented against this, okay? So to a certain extent, Harlan's backing up from his uh, previous dissent and saying, well, um, you know, the, the 14th Amendment does have certain limitations, but if you read the, the Jacobson ruling, he also, he also, it's a very, it's, it's in a word, um, it's not just sophisticated, but nuanced insofar that he, he says, no, the federal government and the 14th Amendment should and could, in a lot of cases, does have jurisdiction to um, protect individual citizens. And he is emphatic about that. Okay, he is very, very emphatic about that. But there are certain exceptions, particularly when it comes to individual uh, liberties uh, versus the public health or interfacing with the public health that, that uh, uh, states, and, and if it's through a state law, the, the state is, if the state's regulating that, then the state should and would have that kind of jurisdiction, okay? So it seemingly contradicted some of his uh, earlier arguments when it came to African-American freedmen, but he makes an all-out effort in that majority ruling, and it's most likely one of the reasons he chose to, he wanted to, 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 to write the, the majority ruling, um, and he was appointed, of course, um, that, that he wanted to, he didn't want this to be used, this ruling to be used in dialectical fashion to, uh, you know, to argue against or for uh, state Jim Crow laws. He, he really wanted to show that, in fact, in certain cases, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, just, it's acceptable and even advised that uh, state laws that protect the public health should move forward, all right? Um, so that's why the, uh, the uh, Supreme Court is, uh, well, not why, but one of the reasons many uh, superior courts and federal circuit courts in, in the U.S. Supreme Court often cite Jacobson versus Massachusetts um, in this regard. Um, so again, though, that's the 14th Amendment. There's other clauses that I've read um, pretty recently that have been bandied about, although, you know, there's, 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 there's federal laws about the, the executive having the uh, power to protect um, and to limit the transmission of uh, clinical diseases, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, foreign countries and when it comes to us interact, interfacing with cor uh, foreign countries. Um, there's also the spending and commerce clauses um, that, are, uh, that have to do with intra, uh, intra and intra, well, actually more interstate uh, commerce. 
And if you can, you know, conceptualize mass, for example, as, especially if they're on sale as, as commodities, then that, that may come under a congressional jurisdiction, particularly under uh, the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Um, you know, and then there's also been, there's also been, like I said at the top of this, there's, there's also been citations to the Free Exercise Clause and the Free Assembly Clause, and of course the First Amendment of the Constitution, but those have not been, um, again, as rigorous and as frequently cited as the 14th Amendment and Jacobson versus Massachusetts in 1905. Yeah, and that's a fascinating yeah. history. The uh, 14th Amendment is one of my, I wrote my uh, MA thesis on the 14th Amendment, and so it's fascinating because the, the public health aspect of it never came up in my research, but it is really interesting to see this, that Jacobson decision happening within the context of the, with, I mean, this it's only, what, 20 years-ish after the slaughterhouse cases, and you yeah. see it, it feels like, and, and then, of course, Plessy versus Ferguson, it does feel like it's a very different interpretation of the 14th Amendment than those other decisions yeah, have made. It's, so it's, it's really interesting to think that Harlan was kind of behind, was behind that. I, I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it before. That's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's intersecting with the progressive era, too, obviously. The 14th Amendment has had such an interesting history and in just playing into the area of health and life, and a lot of that has to do really with that due process clause that appears in section one. I think sometimes when we think about the 14th Amendment, you know, we think a lot about that first line, the very first line of the 14th Amendment that says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States or, you know, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, uh, they're citizens of the United States. And that, I think, is where, you know, a general audience, that may be their familiarity with the 14th Amendment, that might end there, but there's five whole sections, and if you continue reading on, in section one, the due process clause is there, and that applies to uh, what Ryan's been talking about, that nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process. And that's not only come up in the field of talking about uh, vaccinations, masks, all that. It's come up again in 1997 uh, when talking about right to die laws or death with dignity. And that came up in Washington versus uh, Glucksburg, which was a challenge against Washington State's ban on assisted suicide. And they again go back to that due process clause again uh, to argue that assisted suicide and the in effect, right to die is uh, a liberty interest. So it's interesting to see the way that the 14th Amendment has had this expanded role in helping us think about uh, vaccine mandates or even something that we might connect with the opposite end of dying with dignity. Yeah, and so um, so with the Supreme Court cases and the various interpretations of the 14th Amendment in place, did, so the big precedent that people have been talking about when it comes to COVID-19, of course, is the Spanish flu in the wake of World War I in the, in the 19-teens. And so do we have a sense of, you know, what were the precedents that were established during that period that are kind of at play today? What, what, what are the lessons that we learned from that, uh, the Spanish flu era? Well, one of the first things I can mention related to that, um, for one thing, the Spanish flu pretty much died off on its own. Obviously, there never was a vaccine at the time. Um, it's just one of those things where suddenly it was gone. 
Uh, how it happened, I'm not sure myself. I haven't studied the Spanish flu as closely, obviously. Um, however, we know that there were people, there were anti-maskers then, they did organize. Um, it was the same concepts of some of the things that we are running into now. The difference now, and this is where it gets, where you get away from the comparison to the Spanish flu, is that we do have vaccines that have been scientifically shown to have very uh, good success against COVID. Um, COVID-19, excuse me. So the question becomes, how is it different where are we supposed, you know, back in 1918-19, there was not an ability to do that. So the question is, are we, most people who are, want vaccines or are happy that there's a vaccine now believe it's the only way it will completely end is to, um, have a vaccine is for people to take the vaccine, although the anti-vaccine people and others similar have talked about the concept of herd immunity a lot, which is that enough people get it that eventually it'll disappear on its own. The negative in this case so far has been the variants, which seem to be coming out a lot. So the question is, can you compare the two? 100%, we don't you know, I know there's a lot of hope that COVID would disappear on its own eventually, but of course it hasn't been lately, especially in some areas of the country, and mine's one of them. Uh, the numbers continue to go high to the extent that we are now above what they were at the, you know, at the beginning. So uh, 1918 uh, maybe reached an end on its own, but the current one and the concern obviously is going to be continuing. How do we deal with a population, a part of the population who believe that they have the right or the ability to refuse either a vaccine or even the protections that have been, man have been mandated in many states or at least suggested by public health officials? So uh, the uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the Spanish influenza, I agree with I agree with Joel and all, all, all his comments that, uh, you know, the, the, during actually the, uh, the Spanish influenza, um, or the, the, the apogee of it, at least from 1918 to 1919, this was uh, more a, a, a state and a local, it was, it was subject to state and local jurisdiction. Uh, one thing that's hampering it becoming a, a, a federal a constitutional issue, that's not to say there weren't, there, there was course, cases uh, challenging its constitutionality, um, and then also print cultures of that, uh, was uh, the, well, the fact of the matter is, and it really, when you study this, when you study the uh, H1N1 influenza pandemic, you really run into, I mean, it's a story both of that, and then that's also related to World War One and the Wilson administration's uh, handling of World War One, particularly after the uh, the uh, preparedness movement, as well as the um, the issues going into 1918 and going into the first Red Scare, uh, regarding uh, and it set the tone for the 20s, right? Re, uh, the entwinement of civil liberties and what amounts to the the, the, the celebration of uh, commerce, celebration of capital, and um, you know we see we and entwining the two, um, and I think we, we you see a lot of uh, you know. 
there's definitely a strong deterrence against uh, against discourse, political discourse, and uh, legal uh, discussions over uh, anything that 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 would have that would have to do with um, with uh, critiquing the way the uh, federal government and uh, state governments are handling World War One, right? I mean, it isn't just the Wilson administration either. There's you know state laws that are during World War One that are you know mandating that we you know, you, 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 you change the name of, uh, of German foods to more U.S. nomenclature or American English nomenclature. And, I mean, so in, in terms of that, that's really, really limiting. I mean, there's, 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 not, there's not this outspoken, you know, arguments going on, you know, as to whether or not I mean, there are, but they're, they're, it, 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 it's definitely hampering it becoming a, a, a very hardcore uh, legal issue where you see several Supreme Court cases arising from it. Um, on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily preclude uh, state and local, uh, uh, I mean, state and local journalists, for example, pundits and political commentators from debating the constitutionality of it. I mean, it, it's, it's in the print cultures. Uh, you know, throughout the 1918 to 1919 um, pandemic, or at least I, you know, as I saw it, I mean, we, and then it goes beyond that. I mean, I mean, people like, uh, like uh, John Dewey, like advances his, like, you know, his effective freedom and his negative freedom. He goes, he goes into like the, the, the theoretical underpinnings of it and discusses it and then suggests in that context, tries to push forward new, new ways to envision a political economy when it comes to you know uh, the public health, the public health and the reasons for the public health versus commerce, I mean Dewey gets into this kind of this, he does a series of lectures in at Stanford University and at UC Berkeley in California, where he really he really gets into how um, state uh, requirements for masks right um, can uh, help usher in a, a new formulation of U.S. or uh, and California political economy premised on uh, both negative uh, freedom, what he calls negative freedom and effective freedom, or, uh, you know, some of the journalists call positive negative liberty. So, I mean, it, it's, it, I, I do think, I guess my point here is, is that I think um, studying the, uh, the constitutionality of uh, state and federal uh, mass mandates, as well as host of other precautions that were taken, and some of them are, are, are well, some that we take today weren't taken then, like social distancing um, um, and masks, I would say, um, is that it, it needs to be tied, put in the context, I think, of uh, World War I and the Wilson administrations, as well as state uh, legislatures handling of uh, World War I and uh, US society. And just one thing to note too, that, they're, they're, um, that, that what Joel said is absolutely correct, that the, uh, I, I don't know if it quite took care of itself, but there, there wasn't um, any, hardcore successful vaccine during the apogee of the of the pandemic, the 1918-19 pandemic. There was, uh, of course, the uh, Leary vaccine, which uh, was shown to be, I'm not going to say it was bunk, but there was the Leary vaccine that, uh, you know, a lot of people thought was, was working and uh, kind of tapered off and didn't really work. Um, but there, there, that, that if you really study the 1918-19 period, there's a lot of focus on the Leary vaccine somehow working and then not. One of the 
big issues, of course, that's been happening in the United States over the last year or so during the during this pandemic. Uh, to move on to kind of our second topic here is the fact that in the middle of this pandemic, we went into a presidential election uh, that turned out to be a very dramatic, <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, presidential election where the result of the election was not accepted by uh, the 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 losing candidate uh, Donald Trump, who believed that there was some sort of a uh, some sort of fraud or uh, chicanery or some sort of problem, corruption, fraud within the election system that resulted in his electoral loss. And so I just wondered um, if we could talk a little bit about the this this concept of a peaceful transition of political power, um, because we in the United States have kind of taken that for granted. And so I'm wondering what you all think about what, what is what does the Constitution have to say about the actual transition of political power? What what does it? I know that we've built a tradition of of a peaceful transition of power, but where does that trans? Where does that tradition come from? What does the Constitution have to say about um, the transition of power, and how has it evolved over time? And then we'll talk a little bit about efforts to obstruct <laughs> the peaceful transitions uh, in um, in our next topic. But for now, let's focus on the peaceful transition part of it. Where does that come from? The interesting thing is there is very little written in the original document as far as the quote-unquote transition of power. Obviously, there are certain aspects that are written in there in the original document, and the assumption is that Congress would continue to add to that. In fact, a lot of the Constitution assumes that that will happen. In fact, the first time there was a non-elected person being considered for president, and I say considered, it was in when William Henry Harrison was president for all of 30 days, and he was the first president to die in office. Um, John Tyler was his vice president. And at that point, there was no set, uh, you know, obviously there was no precedent as to what would happen next. John Tyler basically believed that he was now president, that uh, the Constitution, the way it was written, the way he read it, was that he became president. Um, Of course, that was not something that was totally agreed upon. It was argued quite a bit. There were some um, issues related to, okay, would, would people agree with that? Well, Tyler, obviously, there were some, and it was political. I mean, obviously, we were talking to his political opponents weren't happy with him with doing that, believing that there was nothing in the Constitution that specified that the vice president becomes president. Uh, The assumption among many would be that he would become an acting president until uh, another president could be elected. But as you as we've said, there's nothing in the the original Constitution related to that. But uh, over time and reasonably quickly, Tyler was able to get uh, Congress to 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 not dis you know the co- the question was would Congress uh, pass something or, or disagree in some way and um, it didn't happen it was definitely argued about quite a bit the congressional uh, tra- transcripts from the time show it mentioned but it actually died off reasonably quickly at least as far as whether he was president or not and of course, from that point forward, that became the regular aspect of how a, a president was replaced if he if he died. 
Of course, the Constitution finally gets into it in after John Kennedy is assassinated, where the Constitution finally had a actual amendment that specified what happened if a president dies, uh, including obviously the president, the vice president becoming president, but also the ability to replace the vice president who now became president with a replacement. And that that was put in partly because when you when you look at the um, the number the information um, by 1963 a lot of people weren't the the previous president who died in office was Roosevelt 1945 so this was 20 years later and before that it, you have to go all the way back to McKinley so uh, there were long periods of time where people just uh, you know people just didn't think about this. But finally, in after the 1963 death of Kennedy, um, Congress put together a uh, an amendment that not only did it um, give the specifics of what happens when a president dies and is definitely replaced by the vice president, uh, and the fact that you can then now, uh, the, the new president can then appoint uh, with Senate approval, or with Congress approval, a replacement. And in fact, the first time that happened would have been when Spiro Agnew resigned uh, because of a criminal uh, case going on uh, under Nixon. So uh, he was replaced by Gerald Ford, who then replaced him when, when he became president, then uh, put in, uh, uh, nominated Nelson Rockefeller to be his vice president. The other thing that the, the amendment added uh, after Kennedy's death was how to handle a situation where the president might not be uh, able to, to perform his or her duties. And that was something that had always been an issue. And if you go back to uh, the end of Woodrow Wilson's term or second term when he had a stroke and basically uh, generally believed it was not really able to be to, to carry on the duties. And in fact, uh, there were issues where, for example, was his wife doing much of the, the work or, or, you know, how is this being handled? And in the modern day, there's just no way in the world I would think that a president could could hide that. But in, at, at that point, it was something that uh, it was suspected, but there was no way to actually prove it. So one of the other things that happened out of the, the 25th Amendment was to add the ability to um, have the president step away for a period of time if necessary, or be replaced uh, using mental or physical um, issues. So while the Constitution original document didn't really uh, go into real detail, it became precedent. That's one of the things they talk about that you know, what's talked about regularly is George Washington willingness to once his terms are up and there was no term limits at the time, he could have run a third time. Um, and then he left. And since then, it's generally speaking, each president, when they've lost, have chosen, have, have stepped down and moved forward, moved on. So um, and then it's finally been codified or at least put in the Constitution, and Congress has then passed some laws to to uh, to have everything work the way it's supposed to. But so finally, the Constitution caught up with the precedent uh, after John Kennedy's death.
Yeah, and so much of what we see changing in the Constitution with the later amendments, too, a lot of what we think about when we think about presidents coming into the office is largely built and for a long time follows tradition. A lot of that coming and beginning with George Washington and the very earliest presidents. Uh, as was just discussed, uh, Washington has his two terms and he decides it's best to then step aside and let others begin to take on that mantle of leadership. And we don't see constitutional laws changing in regards to term limits, term limits for presidents until after uh, World War II and after Franklin Delano Roosevelt's death, uh, who had multiple terms, uh, whose terms spun throughout the Great Depression and through World War II. And then we see that changing because really up until the point of Roosevelt, there had never really been an instance where we had had a president with more than one to two terms. So sometimes what begins as tradition, when something goes up against it that challenges that traditional thought or thought, well, this is the way we've always done it, so surely we'll keep on doing it when that's challenged, there begins to be discussions about constitutionally addressing that. So, for example, too, uh, the things we think about today, or perhaps that we thought up about until the prior point about, well, uh, a president welcomes the incoming president, uh, their wife or whoever is serving as hostess in the White House, that designated role as first lady. She'll then show the next lady, she'll give her a tour the day before and show her the running of the household. That didn't transpire with our latest election. That had been always something that had been done, even during uh, perhaps one of the most controversial or at least politically fraught elections prior to this time. If we're looking at 1860 to 1861, when James Buchanan transitions over to Abraham Lincoln, who with his election has seen states secede from the Union in response. Uh, Buchanan welcomes Lincoln into the White House. Uh, uh, his niece welcomes Mary Lincoln in and shows her the running of the household. They go over the counts, and these were two men who did not agree with each other. They did not like with each other. Uh, famously, later Lincoln would uh, supposedly say that when Mary Lincoln was fussing at him for uh, feeding the tabby cats, uh, a little bit of food off of the White House silverware, he said if it's good enough for Buchanan, it's good enough for Tabby. There's no love lost here. But that transition, that tradition lived on. But just as we see with Roosevelt after he has uh, passed on and you begin to see parties discussing, you know, should there be term limits? There could be questions of do there need to be greater protections? Or does there need to be something uh, formalized within the Constitution to address how things are supposed to occur? I also wanted to add, too, not to underestimate uh, the, uh, the influence of uh, cultural representations of violence and conjectures about, you know, what so-and-so happened in so-and-so state um, or against whatever state assembly, uh, right? Um, and how this could this could happen to you know in the central or federal uh, federal uh, government? I mean, certainly the transition from the Annapolis Convention 
with uh, revising the Articles of Confederation to framing a new federal constitution and the plans thereof, um, you know, in part, I mean, this is kind of going back to like sixth grade social social studies, but what, what partly uh, expedited that, pushed that along, pushed that along was Shays' Rebellion and veterans' grievances, um, uh, particularly when it came to uh, their salaries and then uh, land leases, and um, or what they were due. And so that you know that particular that particularly was promoted as kind of a, an attack that that, that that shook or it was advanced as such that shook the United States to the core and it's been I think correctly cited as a again an expediting factor for the shift to to a, a federal constitution rather than just revising the Articles of Confederation. But you know beyond that too, there's there's uh, you know there's been acts of, uh, of violence even uh, within Congress. Um, um, both by people that, that, that were elected and, and were seated there and, and, and some that weren't. Um, I think there's the historian, um, uh, Joanne Freeman, um, in a kind of a prescient way, wrote a couple years ago, wrote a book, uh, The Field of Blood, about violence in Congress and the buildup to the uh, Civil War, which uh, Natalie already um, pretty astutely uh, addressed. But I, I just I, I do want to say too, and it's not only cultural representations, but also keep in mind too that even individual acts of violence, uh, both their ha both how they're represented, but also their their consequences, um, and and varieties of violence. Um, it, you know, are, it's it's important to note that. I mean, like the the the, the class example of the the Sumner caning, right? The the Charles Cross uh, Brooks uh, caning uh, Charles Sumner. Okay, um, over. Uh, Having she was having to do with uh, the Civil War and abolitionism, et cetera. I mean that 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 was that was represented not just in news stories, news stories, but also visual culture um, um, for people's um, uh, reaching for varieties of literacy, and that kind of that definitely impacted. I think um, you know what what became the uh, the uh, discord that resulted in Civil War. I mean, Sumner, and it's not just cultural representations, too. I mean, I think Sumner himself was, I think, I think he eventually died or he started losing his memory um, from uh, that, that particular beating over the head. I mean, we talked about it, but it was actually, it was actually a pretty severe beating he took a, 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 um, in his head. So both, again, uh, cultural representations of violence um, on the Capitol and what that portends could greatly influence uh, U.S. Uh, political culture as well as the consequences of individual acts of violence by people are supposed to be there and people are not supposed to be there. And I would agree and back that up with Joel too. Uh, just to throw in, we think of Sumner today, and he made a great recommendation for Joanne Freeman's book, Field of Blood. It, it's a great look at political violence in the period up to the Civil War. Uh, but Sumner is just the most famous case uh, of political violence that we remember and teach about today. There are other instances also revolving around the subject of slavery in the lead up to the Civil War. We can look at uh, John Potter from Wisconsin. He is nearly called into a duel with another Southerner over their discussion, and uh, Potter famously calls for the use of Bowie knives during the night. And there's during the fight, and they are so at odds uh, with each other over this, and the public spectacle, the idea of these congressmen dueling, which is illegal in Washington, D.C., and in the areas outside of it as well. Uh, 
it so takes the public ima imagination that when the 19, I mean the 1860. A Republican convention, the nominating convention, occurs that uh, supporters of Potter who want to throw his name into the ring, he didn't really have a chance, they bring out a six-foot bowie knife that they've recreated to mark the moment it was well enough known and would be recognized at the convention. So it was very much visually a part of the culture. It's very much visually a part of Lincoln's inauguration too. When he actually takes office, it's known that there are assassination attempts. The one is pulled in Baltimore before he arrives in the Capitol. And if you look at accounts of the city at that time, soldiers are already starting to be in the city. And uh, according to one individual who was writing in his journal at the time living in Washington, D.C., he's noting that individuals within the audience, whereas they might not always carry weapons with them before, uh, people were carrying pistols with them to be in action. So all of that that's occurring before is playing out uh, within the public. And then the other one that uh, kind of along the, the other one kind of along those lines that um, I've always been interested in is the uh, the duel that was fought between uh, the U.S. Senator David Broderick from California and the and David Terry, who was the former Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, um, and they fought a duel in 1859. And the the duel had come from their they used to be friends, but they had diverged over the issue of slavery to the point where they started shooting at each other one day, and the um, uh, Senator uh, David Broderick uh, ended up dying in that duel. So yeah, there's there's violence happening, and that, that was in California. So it's happening literally across the country, happening, but it's also happening within within Congress, but outside out in the rest of the country also. This is a personal plug, but then like four minutes away, there's a uh, from where I'm sitting right now. Um, there's a there's a restaurant called Broderick's, and it tells that entire story on the wall of when you enter the restaurant. Oh, very the, cool. The whole story of all the duel, um, and supposedly the, the certain certain food is was a Broderick's favorite food in, in this particular restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. And but I'm also wondering uh, when it comes to talking about the peaceful transition of power, going back to that idea, um, is it? too much to say and this is something that i've kind of i haven't really done any kind of serious research on and so i may be just kind of making this up and who knows but i'm curious what you all think about this idea that the constitution itself yes there's the you know there's the later amendments that codified when the vice president becomes president and all of that but i'm wondering the original conception of the constitution the selection of the president depended on who got the most electoral votes, but then the person that got the second most electoral votes became the vice president, which usually means that you're going to have a president from one party and a vice president from the other party. Uh, and then usually, as we saw during the early administrations, the Washington years, the Adams years, and a little bit into the Jefferson years, uh, you start to see the vice presidential candidate, or the vice president, sorry, not candidate, but the actual vice president, who would set about to kind of undermine the the, the policies and the uh, power of the president because the president the pre whoever was in the presidency was of the opposite political party and so I'm wondering kind of looking at it from that perspective I wonder if there's do you guys think there's any any I, any anything to this idea that the original constitution was actually kind of designed to create a little bit of political tension I'm sure they wouldn't want violence they should they wouldn't want you know 
David Broderick dying from a gunshot wound or, you know, anything like that. But I'm wondering if there's anything to the idea that there actually was built into the system a little bit of political tension that we actually kind of, we as the United States kind of outgrew over time and then eventually kind of wiped away from the Constitution with things like the 12th Amendment and later on the, the 26th Amendment. I'm forgetting which, which, which amendment it was in the wake of uh, JFK's death. But do, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, part of what I've been, what I tend to read from Washington and some of the other participants is, I believe in my, if, if we're going to be supposing that the idea was that there would, you know, the lack of parties, really there were, this was not a political party situation when the constitution was uh, first passed. We don't really get a true political party uh, issue until um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, the Jefferson Adams election. And of course, we know that Washington spoke against political factions, whether it was an, the idea that they thought, well, we're, you know, the, the, the men who are writing this document and, the, and those that will continue on in the new government are quote unquote above that. Maybe they didn't really believe that, but they said it a lot. Uh, they felt that uh, parties were not going to be an issue. So in this particular case, you're right. The second place voter, the, the person who got the second most votes became vice president. And there is obviously, you know, the person who did not win is not necessarily, even if they're not in, if it's they're in the same party, there is questions related to can they, <laughs> can the president and vice president get along? And I think, uh, it doesn't take long to prove that uh, it was going to be a bigger issue. And it's not very long after the first few terms of the first few presidents that that law changed or that uh, part of the constitution was, was amended to, to take away that, um, that situation, whether it was purely political, was it a political reason? Because by that point, the parties were in existence or because it didn't work or wasn't working is, is I'm not sure myself. I, I would put in though too that really uh, the position of Vice President of the United States was originally much more toothless than we imagine it to be today. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the vice presidents who've been in the position of power uh, since the tenure of uh, the second George Bush, that we see a different role for vice presidents and their activity within that position. John Adams, uh, during his tenure, is really kind of out that he's largely excluded from what, or as he sees being excluded from being really a part of uh, the people who make things happen <laughs> in while he is in the position. And uh, so it's really when we get to the 12th Amendment and we look more at uh, the vice president coming from the, the same party or being selected to be with uh, the vice president instead of being the second runner-up. I'm not certain that they really saw the issue that the second runner-up being vice president was a problem uh, just because they saw it as, you know, 
a, a much more limited role than we tend to assign the position today. Of course, uh, I am not as strong on my my Twelfth Amendment understanding or of the Vice President, but it, it would seem to point that just based on Adam's experience and our much different view of the Vice President today, that that could be the case. I think certainly too to add a, to to add on this. I mean, faction isn't necessarily party; party isn't necessarily faction. But um, I think uh, you know during the ratification debates, uh, James Madison, uh, you know, wrote what would become right Federalist Ten, and I think more of the focus of that particular argument had to do with faction. And I think it, I'm not sure um, the constitutional the Constitution or even the Virginia Plan as proposed was was full on em embracing. Um, partisanship or even kind of a, fa a factional identity, but certainly I think James Madison sort of alludes to the fact that that, um, uh, that, that it's almost, uh, I'm not going to say inevitable, but but he definitely, factions are quite frequent in, in the history of political systems, and I think uh, he focuses on controlling the effects, right, um, with, you know, multiple candidates and, and representation of interest, and I think, and then, uh, you know, how, how how the, you know, the compromise is the name of the game and, you know, issues like that. So I think he's sort of focused on, on, um, on uh, you know, accepting factions. Again, parties aren't necessarily factions. Factions aren't necessarily parties. But um, I think uh, he, he, he seemed to be at least accepting of the fact that there, 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 there would be some sort of factionalism um, uh, going on and then focusing on its consequences and um, harness both – controlling and harnessing them is sort of his, his, his central argument. And again, that's also related to um, apportionment of, uh, of representation and population and the three-fifths compromise and all that. Um, I also wanted to note, too, that, uh, that in terms of uh, the, uh, the general, the history of, of party, I mean, certainly there, there's a, a lot of influences um, in the American Revolution, as we know, from co country party uh, authors. Um, how those influences played out and, and, and why they played out, it's always subject to historiographical debate. Um, but, uh, you know, the British histories of party, I, I just, I, I, I finished reading recently a book um, published by Cambridge University Press called The Persistence of Party in uh, uh, British Political and Intellectual Culture. And it was it was it was very compelling, showing that uh, parties, uh, certain uh, authors and pundits, really focused on parties as as being crucial to a political system. Um, couldn't do the political system, but also uh, were very important to understanding political systems, and could, in some cases, um, advance with multiple causes. And um, so the the book title of the book is the persistence of party. And again, that book also contains James Madison, and that's kind of the go to figure. Um, and I think it's uh, James Madison is cited as accepting uh, the uh, presence of parties in um, polities through time. That's really great, and, and I uh, appreciate all of your insights there. I was uh, I, f I forget where the the question about the uh, uh, the the original president versus vice president. I forget where that came up as originally. I think it might have been a discussion with students in one of my classes, and I've always just been kind of curious about that. Like I said, I, I haven't done any research on it, so. Certainly not ready, to, not about to publish a book on it or anything. But uh, this this was a really really interesting conversation that kind of informed a lot of uh, uh, my thoughts on that. So that's really great. Thank you for that. Um, so 
let's wrap up here today by talking a little bit about the um, efforts to prevent the you know the, the 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 peaceful transition of power. We've actually already talked about a bunch of these about a bunch of that here, um, and obviously the most the most obvious. Uh, before you know, putting aside the January sixth uh, insurrection, as it's been called in the United States um, this year in 2021, of course, the the previous example was the Civil War, which was, of course, the most dramatic uh, instance of trying to prevent the peaceful transition of power. And so, I'm wondering, are there any other examples from American history that we could point to of efforts to try to stop that uh, the, the the peaceful transition of power, and how have we kind of moved on from that as a nation how have we addressed that the, that that the desire to block the, uh, the the transition of power and in in many ways i suppose this really gets to kind of the core of american democracy is that democracy only works if both sides agree to abide by the results of an election but what other instances have we seen in american history that might be in some way comparable to the january 6th insurrection well, I, th I still think we have to kind of go to 1860 to 1861, so maybe right, we should dive into that one a little deeper. <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> so if we're looking at the election of Abraham Lincoln, there's a few different things we have to know in preview before we discuss it. And one, it doesn't end up being your typical two candidates from two different parties running for the presidency in 1860. Uh, it will be Abraham Lincoln uh, for the newly formed Republican Party, but you also have a split in the Democratic Party and resulting in two candidates, and you also have uh, the creation of an entirely new party called the Constitutional Union Party with John Bell of Tennessee uh, being its candidate. So this is really a four-horse race, and all the candidates will pull votes from all the areas, uh, all different areas. No one goes home without a state's electoral votes. Even John Bell has a few. So. What we see with Abraham Lincoln uh, as an added point is that if we're talking about, you know, I don't know if we want to talk about obstruction or, you know, obstruction of voting or what have you, but uh, Lincoln's name is purposely left off of uh, ballots in many southern states, so he's not even appearing as a candidate in many cases, but he still wins the election of 1860, and that then uh, starts this process of secession of states from the Union. We see South Carolina in December, and then in January we see Mississippi and Florida and Alabama. Georgia will be the last right before uh, we get to the point where uh, Lincoln will begin, oh, I guess Louisiana too, before Lincoln begins his uh, journey towards Washington, D.C. To, to be inaugurated as president in 1861. And uh, there was a great deal of anxiety within the American public at that time. Uh, Lincoln was seen, even though he was a moderate Republican candidate and would publicly say uh, that he, you know, did not advocate, he, he knew that the Constitution did not allow him to affect slavery within the slaveholding states. He did not believe it allowing that. Uh, he did not have plans to enter with that. He did, however, privately and firmly say, you know, he wanted to stop the expansion of slavery within Western territories. And uh, 
the Southern public had become familiar with Abraham Lincoln, uh, in part because they had followed uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858. That's what really gives Lincoln national rise. And Lincoln's opponent, Stephen Douglas, will be one of those candidates for whom uh, the Democratic Party, when it breaks, Douglas will be one of the men who runs against Lincoln once again. Ironically, they're both from Springfield. Uh, they also probably both courted Mary Todd, who's <laughs> Lincoln's eventual wife at the same at the same time, uh, Lincoln went out, obviously. But uh, Lincoln uh, is also very aware that uh, the secession of the states is tied to uh, is tied to his position on slavery. They have followed the Lincoln-Douglas debates. They've discovered that uh, they really don't like what he has to say concerning slavery because that is the topic of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Uh, but Lincoln helps to publicize that position even further following the Lincoln-Douglas debates because he has the debates publicly printed and bound and uh, sold as copies. And leading up to 1860, he goes on a... Uh, somewhat of a national tour. He doesn't really travel into the South to give speeches, but he does make it uh, to the Northeast. He travels uh, in parts West, and he begins talking to crowds. And when he's coming uh, to Washington, D.C., after his election, he has stayed purposely quiet, uh, trying not to arouse anger. James Buchanan, uh, as I noted in a previous section, he's going to do those traditional things uh, that presidents have traditionally done, taking the ride with the incoming president uh, to the inaugural ceremonies. But he really doesn't do anything to halt the oncoming civil war, because that is what is now is happening. He is not going to deal with the secession crisis. He is going to leave that to Lincoln uh, and his incoming administration to solve. And uh, the streets in Washington, D.C. are quite concerned. Uh, Washington, D.C. will remain in federal hands throughout the war, but uh, it is a divided city. There are a great deal of people with uh, Southern and what will eventually be Confederate loyalties in that city, and there's a great deal of people with un uh, loyalties towards the United States as well. Uh, on his way to be inaugurated, Lincoln is being very careful not to give very large public speeches or public statements that will go out into the press. He does make some addressing of crowds along the way. Uh, for example, he will stop in Philadelphia at Independence Hall, and he gives a speech in which he says he's never had any thought that didn't spring from the Declaration of Independence. He always centers that at the center of his political thought. And uh, there is, continues to be growing tension, and while he's on his way, he receives information that a plot has been uncovered in Baltimore to assassinate him, which that, up until that point in time in history, no one has ever assassinated uh, a president in the United States history, and it is foiled in part because of the services of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which at that time uh, was for hire and had been contracted to help uh, foil any attempts because there was public knowledge that there was uh, growing sentiment uh, that it could go into physical violence. So there were lots of soldiers in the Capitol at the 1861 inauguration. Lincoln has 
formed a inaugural address that attempts to make amends, saying, you know, basically, you know, we're not enemies, we're friends, you know, let's, you can, you can come back in, it's not too late, but also being very firm in character that uh, should things progress, uh, that he will stand forcefully behind the preservation of the United States. And uh, individuals who were there watching the address were fearful that day. There were fears legitimately that violence would break out in the streets. Uh, there were a great deal of concerns that there might be hidden enemies uh, with Confederate sympathies who would attack. That later leads to a select committee uh, within Washington, D.C., led by the very John Potter that I mentioned before, too, he of Bowie Knife fame, he'll lead that select committee to try to ferret out people who are working in the federal government who have Confederate sympathies and loyalties. So it is a divided town. Uh, people are on edge. There are, is cannon fire that occurs during the inauguration, and it makes people jump, not just because of the noise, because they're truly fearful that violence is going to follow. But the traditions of the day went out in this instance. Buchanan rides with Lincoln to the inauguration. Lincoln gives his speech. They have the typical balls that follow a presidential inauguration. And all continues on until we eventually get to the point of Fort Sumter. I do want to note too that um, I'm not I'm not sure if there's been uh, in terms of exactly like the direct attack on the Capitol. I mean, save for uh, uh, Natalie's erudite assessment of, of uh, Civil War. I mean, we have you know we have the uh, Grant and Hayes Compromise of 1877 that involves uh, uh, troop withdrawal to a certain extent. Um, I, I mean, I could tell you that there's been presidents that that haven't. One president hasn't. <laughs> One, the uh, the the, uh, the president elect hasn't liked the uh, lame duck president. I mean, such as the case with uh, uh, FDR and Hoover, right? And Herbert Hoover, right? Where FDR was not really that into Hoover and engaged in in several acts that made it clear that he wanted Hoover to go away. Um, I mean, there's also been, you know, this is and this is more electoral and settled settled in the court system, court system. Um, but there was still, I, I, I think, protests was the uh, 2000 uh, election and the 2000-2001 transition um, from uh, Bill Clinton to George Bush and the Supreme Court ruling on the, the Florida vote tallies. That certainly, in recent memory, was a, 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 a disputed election. But again, that was handled within the court system, although um, there were protests and um, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think a, a, a full-on, it didn't result in a full-on attack on the Capitol. I think the fact that, uh, that uh, Gore was willing to accept it is what obviously diffused the, that situation. Had Gore chosen to be more to to, to disagree um, in some way, there may have been bigger issues in 2000. But in this particular case, and he did a president, he did a uh, speech and everything in which he said he disagreed with the results, but those were the results. And um, that's certainly different from what happened in 1860 and even to, a, to an extent what happened in 2020, where one party chose one person, one candidate 
chose to uh, indicate that there were fraud, fraud in the election, uh, was even saying it before the election even happened. So he uh, laid the groundwork to, to, to use that argument. Uh, unfortunately, and this goes back to our discussion about the, um, the pandemic, uh, the pandemic got politicized, as far as I see, right at the beginning. And unfortunately, that also was an issue with the election where um, right from the beginning, there was fears of one candidate not accepting the results, and, and that turned out to be the case. Um, it was clear that uh, the country made it through the transition. Uh, it was tough, and I won't be on. I will be honest. I was one of those folks who was considerably worried until January twentieth, and um, would it actually happen? And thankfully, it did. Although, what really would have happened, no one really knows. I mean, there's starting to be more and more material coming out about what was going on, but. I, I think we have to be careful with that. We, we as historians don't, you know, talk about current events as being historical because there's just so much information we don't know. And there's a lot of folks coming out with books and stuff, but we haven't had a chance to really identify or look at them as, as anything related to history. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention about 1860 related to uh, the ongoing, on, the beginnings of the Civil War, that there was an actual, um, at the time South Carolina uh, uh, seceded from the Union, which was in December, so barely a month after the election, they seceded. However, they'd been talking about it ahead of time. This was not some big surprise that they went. Um, they had said that Lincoln's election was going to be an issue, and so it's not completely surprising from the from the period to to know that that's not that the fact that they left wasn't a surprise um but what was also going on during that period is that the various uh what would become confederate states starting with south carolina were sending what they called commissioners from their state to other states to try to convince other states to also secede they would uh, bring information and details and reasoning from why one state uh, chose to secede. There's a great, uh, an interesting book by Charles Dew called Apostles of Disunion, uh, which I think really lays this out just to show that whether you could consider that to be sedition in any way, shape or form is, is open to question, but there's no question that there was actual planning and or work being done behind the scenes, so to speak, to develop and to expand the the uh, Confederacy, what would become the Confederacy, even before Lincoln took office. Yeah, I think based on what you guys have been saying here, that the um, I think the the difference with twenty twenty, of course, seems to be that there actually is a candidate who's doing this openly. Um, we're talking about how you've got the commissioners going out and kind of making arrangements with the, with other states, but that's all happening in secret. That's not happening right out in in public 2020 of course is different the 2021 insurrection is different because there is you know the, the the there is kind of focused around one candidate in the the way the way it seems to have played out anyway and again um uh joel makes an excellent point that of course we can't speak too too much about january 6th yet as historians because it's so recent but the 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 kind of 
over in some ways, I guess perhaps the obvious difference, of course, is that you've got all of the hopes and dreams of the part of the group of people that are trying to obstruct the election are personified in one person. It's not really in a cause uh, so much like it was back in 1860. In 1860, it was kind of this movement amongst a whole lot of different politicians. Really, in 2021, it was kind of focused around one person, which I think is the main difference here. And who knows, as as we uncover more information as time goes on, maybe, you know, who knows, our, our current conception of January 6th could could be completely wrong and who knows what will change by then. But that, at least in the short term, seems to be one of the differences here, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think Joel also makes a point too that, you know, uh, not just a lame duck president, but it could also be the incoming president, um, you know, not so much accepting, but adhering to uh, various legal processes and, um, you know, electoral tallies and decision-making that we usually, you know, that are usually our, our, our organizing principles for our political system and then continuing forward that um, much, pre you know, that, that, that usually mitigates um, any potential of something, you know, along the lines of what happened in, uh, you know, with the transition from um, Trump to Biden. And unfortunately, this is one of those examples that we continually were saying, particularly in this last year, but sometimes over the last four years, to be frank about it, was we are seeing things that we've never seen before. And although we're trying to look at the past to try to say, okay, have we seen things? And clearly, 1860 is still worse than, than anything else that we've ever seen. Um, 1876 with the end of reconstruction that that particular uh, decision over that contested election was bad but and and, and as bad as uh, January 6th could is was or likely was it still isn't the same as 1860 which uh, is we as when we talk to people who aren't historians or when we hear people who aren't historians they tend to to focus on present and not really know the specifics, which of course is one of the reasons we're doing this in the first place, is to try to look back and say, okay, can we really say what, is there something that was worse? Yes. Could it have been a little better? Yes. But at the bottom line is, is that uh, these last year, this last year or so, in many ways, and if you go back into the pandemic, is things that we've never seen before. Now that what is so interesting about this current moment too and what struck me on January 6th because I did watch uh, the floor of Congress following that was how often the members of both parties then called upon the words of Abraham Lincoln either in often out of context uh, but still but they called upon those words of Lincoln there was an awareness that we had somehow reached a moment that tied us to another moment of great distress just by the fact that both sides at that time were calling on the memory of the 16th president. Yeah, that's right. I had forgotten about that. That's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. So I think really this demonstrates, of course, that historians, we Basically, I think we should all get together in about 150 years, and the four of us can discuss the, the January 6th insurrection in a little bit more context, a little more uh, kind of the longer scope of history, 
Um, and until then, I think this is a, probably a good time to, to, to bring this to an end. We've been talking for about an hour and a half now, and um, this is a really great conversation. I think we can probably all go probably for the rest of the week <laughs> if we wanted to. Uh, but I just wanted to um, take this opportunity to thank you all for uh, joining me here today. Thanks, Rob, for having us, or me. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. It's been great talking with you all. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, Podbean, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any other of our podcast, please send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at Work Historians. For Natalie Sweet, Ryan Tripp, and Joel Cherney, I'm Rob Denning. Happy Constitution Day, everybody. Go party like it's 1787.